Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at the new horror film Gretel and Hansel. We're also going to take a gander at the Obama Foundation documentary American Factory, nominated for Best Documentary in this year's Academy Awards and available on Netflix. We gave it a watch. We're going to tell you what we think. We don't watch a whole lot of documentaries on this show, so I'm anxious to get to the bottom of it. We're also going to do a little Oscar predicting in the middle of our show. Uh, what we think will win versus what we hope will win. Uh, two very different things. And before we get to all of it, we need to talk about the news. Our first story this week, the Super Bowl. Most movie ads sitting out the big game as prices soar. Andy, do you know most media outlets can't say Super Bowl? They have to say the big game because yes, the NFL it, owns it. it yes, it it is copyright written. But and the, the, <laughs> the NFL try, attempted to copyright the big game. That's right. But, but we're denied is, that. This is a podcast, and we don't make a dime, so ha-ha. <laughs> can call it. I assume we can call it the Super Bowl. Maybe not. I don't know. But Come anyway, after us. Yeah, all right. Well, <laughs> we'll, we'll strike that from the record. Uh, most movie ads sitting out the big game is prices soar, which is a weird thing, right? Commercials during the Super Bowl is uh, when all the big, big trailers come out, at least I thought. Yeah, it used to be that way for a while. There used to be as many as, you know, 10 TV spots, but the prices just continued to go up. Now, a 30-second spot is about $5.5 million, and it's much cheaper to just play your your TV spot in pregame or postgame. It's about half the cost, so we're seeing more there. But I think also things just like internet distribution and Twitter distribution are equally as, as powerful. Yeah, man, it's it's a funny thing about I guess not advertising, but just like the a sign of the times, uh, an, an internet conundrum, if you will. I've seen this in video games. Uh, oftentimes, studios will just push out a trailer on the internet and put a bunch of money behind it, rather than like wait for some kind of event to happen to to place it around. Because like, why bother? Why why bother trying to advertise your huge new film next to another large event when you could just dump it on the internet on a Tuesday? On, you know when nothing's going on you'll be the story of the day you'll be you'll be the head headline of the 12 hour news cycle but if you stick it in the middle of the super bowl it just gets lost right like everybody just like everybody else your ad is worth just as much as everybody else's 5.6 million dollar ad right exactly it's just it's so much and like again that there's you can watch it later on on the internet, and m- most of the time I've seen all the spots, and it's all for really big movies. It's not like they're showing something that you haven't seen. You know, it's all like Disney and Universal taking these spots. It's not like some independent uh, film. Yes. Uh, this year's Super Bowl, of course, saw trailers for things like Fast and Furious 9, which might just be called Fast 9. I'm not really sure. Uh, I think it's called F9 the fast saga oh is it real stop you're making that up <laughs> I'm not. seriously okay it's fine uh, and what what, what are the, the best takeaway is that uh charlie's there and plays simple jack in the, in the, so <laughs> because of her hair, hor- terrible haircut horrible tropic thunder gag uh we we should do a depth of cinema segment at some point about like naming films and sequel uh mm-hmm. dur- during the hot during the gretel and hansel uh the screening I saw, they definitely ran an ad for Brahms The Boy 2, which is a real name of a movie, um, so I don't know. But uh, this year we saw trailers for things like Fast 9, The Furious Saga, uh, Minions, The Rise of Gru, Disney had some ads for Mulan and Black Widow and Onward, uh, their new Pixar film. A Quiet Place, I think, had an ad. I didn't actually watch the big game, as it were. Uh, did you, any chance? What? Sorry, say that again? Did you watch the, the, the big game? Uh, yes, I I did. I did okay. catch. I ca- caught all the commercials. Caught all the, the TV spots. Yeah, uh, and and it was cool because you they did show some new footage from things like Black Widow. That they showed a trailer for the uh, the a couple of the Disney Plus shows that re- related to the Marvel verse. Um, some things that are, are I had already seen, like the F nine fa- fast whatever they're calling it, yeah. uh, as as well. <laughs> F nine. Well, uh, for what it's worth, keep it here for more on movie trailers, something we always like to talk about. Uh, we're not big on the big game, but, you know, go uh, Chiefs. Go, I think the Chiefs sports. The, I think the Chiefs won, won the sports ball this year. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, our next story, Actors Union establishes new rules for sex scenes with intimacy coordinators. I'm going to be honest, I don't really know what this means, so I'm hoping <laughs> Andy can kind of give us the rub on this. What's going on? 
yes, I do. In response to things like the Me Too movement and other kind of gray areas in in film production, particularly during things like sex scenes or other kind of intimate moments, uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of uh, rules and, and guidelines to this space. And uh, so uh, the Actors Union has come up with, uh, like I said, a set of guidelines and kind of this position of intimacy coordinator, which is basically like a stunt coordinator, but for sex scenes. So what, what they'll do is they'll negotiate with the work with the director and actor and establish, you know, what is the director's vision? What is the actor comfortable with? And this is in response for things like James Franco had some sort of quote unquote acting school, which where he would invite, you know, young up and coming actresses to take part in the scene. And oh, oh, what do you know? It's a sex scene. And there's not really any real guidelines about what is or isn't kind of on the table where the boundaries are. So this is meant to protect everyone in, in the industry on, on both sides from uh, kind of sexual harassment and other, you know, things like that. I guess I'm not surprised Franco's like a bit of a creep behind the scenes. <laughs> like that doesn't, somehow that doesn't surprise me. And that's horrible. I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh at that. But, uh, you know, I guess a good thing, right? Probably a good thing for movies on, on, on its face. This seems like a positive, positive move aiming to fight sexual harassment and other sexual misconduct like uh, do we have any do we have any qualms about this because i i no well I it's, yeah you know, it it's, it's just like uh, again comparing it to to stunts uh you know if things aren't uh you know if people aren't careful on a stunt uh, someone can get hurt an actor can get hurt a stunt coordinator can get hurt we did the story last year about the the girl i can't remember her name but she she's the one who slammed her hand on the glass and eventually her her head went through it and she like gashed open her jaw um, oh yeah, I remember that story. You know, so it's uh, things can go too far, and people can get get hurt. And it's even more so in uh, something like a sex scene, especially since you know there's it's kind of just a yes no. Oh yes, you're okay with the sex scene. No, you're not. And then there's but there's a whole lot of gray in there that, that leaves room for you know inappropriateness and misconduct, and for people to get un, uncomfortable and for things to go too far. So this is in an effort to just kind of codify what happens, what actors are comfortable with and what, and marry that with what a director wants out of his, out of the scene. Yeah. And I I think you, you said it best. Like this is fundamentally similar to like a stunt coordinator, right? This is choreography. This is acting. Like that's an important part of this. This is not actually like real events that's happening. And, and I guess sometimes it's easy to forget that there's there's directors out there who want you know the the purest performance as possible and the boldest of bold cinema, but uh, I don't know. It, it can get a little a little complicated if you're not paying attention. So I think ultimately a good thing. Uh, actors unions are probably a strong thing. Uh, you know, you look at things like SAG. That's something people enjoy being a part of. So yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I'll take intimacy coordinators. I think that's probably a positive for cinema. Our last story, uh, Adam Sandler signs deal with Netflix to make four more films. Womp, womp. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Adam, yeah, Adam Sandler, uh, of course, made five uh, films with Netflix as part of his Happy Madison's production deal with them. That's his uh, studio, and he also made a stand-up special. But they've announced they're going to make four more movies. Uh, Netflix leader Ted Sarandos said that the company loves his stories and his humor. Um, obviously, they've seen great returns in people that have watched those. Record numbers have turned out to watch Adam Sandler's streaming films. Hot takes, Andy Draper. What do you think of this? Uh, I mean, he he still got it, whatever it is, uh, and I, and I've heard this before because I I'm not a real huge Adam Sandler fan outside of Uncut Gems, of course, um, but apparently he's huge overseas and has a big following, and you know he struck a huge deal with Netflix for those uh, four or five films, they were really popular, including this uh, 2019 comedy Murder Mystery, which starred him and Jennifer Aniston, which I never saw, but I'm a little interested in it now. Um, it's a hot brand, and it's it's something that keeps people coming back to Netflix, and that's of course what they're looking for. So, and I saw in a different headline where this is like you know a 215 million dollar deal. I'm so split on how I feel about this. On the one hand, yes, I guess I should be happy for Mr. Sandler. He said before, essentially what these deals are are opportunities for him to hang out with his friends in like foreign locales and make movies, which is, I mean, what actor doesn't love doing that? Uh, and they get to make them their way with their humor and their scripts. And like, that's really cool. It's almost like making home movies with your friends. 
on the other hand, like I think it says so much about what streaming services are that I don't think these films would hold up in theaters. But they don't have to on Netflix, right? Like they only have to get views and clicks. And when it's completely free, you're not going to be too wary of clicking on. Um, Oh God! What was that movie yeah. he made? The Western or any of them, right? Murder mystery or any of the others? I guess you're you're just gonna click it and watch it because why not? Yeah, I mean we've kind of discussed this before, where a lot of times if you watch something on Netflix and it's a disappointment, you don't it doesn't sting as much as if you paid and took the time to go to the theater to see something that isn't very good. Right. The cost to entry uh, or the barrier to entry is so low, it costs you really nothing to just click on it and watch 10 minutes of it. That if you're bored, you'll just click on something else and you move on. I think that does still count as a click and, and a play as far as Netflix is concerned. But regardless, Mr. Sandler keeps, gets to keep doing what he loves. Netflix keeps gets to keep cranking out mediocre films for people to be curious enough to watch. Um, and, and the world goes on, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's not not bold cinema, the kind of thing we'd covered on this show. But hey, it's it's movies, and and I guess it's valid, I suppose. Well, and I I think that success allows him to, you know, I think it allowed him to do something like Uncut Gems. You know, if you're if Netflix is paying the bills, then you can do experimental projects outside of that. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of what I wish this would all lead towards. I wish it would lead more towards him, like trying harder. I'm not saying maybe maybe he is trying in, in in these films. Maybe he is like really trying to do something new. But like if I didn't know any better, it just seems like it's a conveyor belt of mediocrity. You know, you look at something like Uncut Gems. Clearly, Mr. Sandler has a lot of talent. I mean, clearly he's got talent. You can look at his previous uh, uh, track record of like really great films he's made. But these are just so like boilerplate. And I just wish I wish he'd do more. I wish he'd like kind of try, you know, for a change. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, what do I know? You're talking millions of dollars and travel around the world and actors and actresses and scripts. It's not easy, um, but I don't know. I, I, I think I think he can do more. You know, I think he can do better, and I wish he'd um, lean more towards that than just kind of doing things he likes. I don't know. Sure. Personal, <laughs> personal uh, qualm. Anyway, with that being said, we should move on to our first episode of the show. Man, what a weird news segment. Very editorialized uh, <laughs> by myself, so I apologize. Uh, yes, our first film of the episode. I'm going to be taking the summary on this one. The movie is Gretel and Hansel. Gretel, there's a storm coming. This is your power. To see what is hidden and to take it. All that is left is to make him. Gretel and Hansel is a modern A24-esque retelling of the grim fairy tale, of course, uh, for anybody who doesn't know. A long time ago, in a distant fairy tale uh, land, a young girl and her little brother uh, are led into the dark woods by a trail of fundamentally breadcrumbs, uh, only to find a, a hut filled with food and cakes and, and warmth and comfort, and an old woman who turns out to be a, and I don't feel bad for spoiling the fairy tale because this one's really old uh, a witch <laughs> who is aiming to eat uh, uh hansel and 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 probably gretel as well and they have to uh you know deal deal with that that's 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 the grim fairy tale this is essentially just a retelling of that and a very old school looking style the movie stars sophia lillis as uh gretel uh she is the girl from it she played barb and it uh, uh, and a couple of other characters, otherwise small cast, very small budget, very art house looking movie. Uh, the movie is Gretel and Hansel. Andy, what did you think of Gretel and Hansel? So I was genuinely surprised uh, by this. I, I really enjoyed it um, for what it was. Um, it was a very much like an atmospheric horror movie. It wasn't about jump scares. It had a couple, but it, it wasn't that kind of thing. It wasn't a quiet, quiet bang. It was all about this mood. It opens up with kind of this telling of a legend of uh, kind of this cursed uh, land, this cursed child, and, you know, kind of they they take this child to the, the local witch, as you do, and, you know, get <laughs> a cursed lift. You, yeah. you get a curse slip, but you know, there's this whole thing that, about gifts, this theme of gifts through the film where, uh, Sophia Lil- says, or Gretel says uh, a number of times, nothing is given without something being taken. And it's this, this legend, this idea of being wary of, of gifts and free gifts and, and those kinds of things. Um, 
So it's very dark. Um, it's it, it's dark. It's grim. It's brooding. It's black. They're they're in the forest. The forest itself is really creepy. It's reminded me a lot of things like The Witch. The soundtrack reminded me a lot of Mandy. Uh, it's got a little this '80s th- synth thing. Um, it's not perfect. It's it's got a little bit of weak writing, but overall, I surprisingly enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, I felt a little differently. I think this movie uh, has a lot of potential to be better than it is. Um, It is shot really well. The set design's fantastic. The lighting and the cinematography is good. I really enjoyed the acting. The script's pretty tight. The music is good. The direction is solid. I'll tell you where I think this movie falters. It's in the editing room. This movie struggles with some serious pacing, and I think it really hurts the entire picture. But there's so much in this movie that works, and that's exactly where we should start talking about this before I get to the things that don't work, because it's really not that bad. It, it, it could have been better, I think, if just a couple of tweaks were made to what it is. But similar to something like Underwater, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it, and... and um, Fairly disappointed in the things that I didn't enjoy. So let's talk about Gretel and Hansel. Uh, the first things first, let's get into our plot. Uh, like I said, we've got just a retelling of the fairy tale. We have Gretel, played by Sophia Lillis. Hansel, her younger brother, played by a young boy who I'm not familiar with. This is one of his first roles. Samuel Leakey. Yes. Uh, we have a very brief appearance by a hunter. Uh, and, and we have our old woman, let's say, uh, played by Alice Krieg. I think that's how you pronounce her name. She was the Borg Queen in Star Trek, and she's also made some appearances since. Have you ever watched any of the Christmas Prince films on Netflix? Those goofy uh, uh, Christmas romance films? She's Queen Helena in those movies, and she's been in some other stuff since. Uh, that's primarily our cast. We have Gretel, Hansel, and, and, and the old woman. That's pretty much the movie. It's, <laughs> that, it's, it is pretty much it. Yes, uh, they are. We'll get to. Well, let's. I guess let's talk performances now that I've now that I've brought them up. Andy, what'd you think? Um, I this is the, the, the speaking of things that took you out of it. This was a little bit what takes me out is um you know again I said it reminded me a lot of the witch. Part of what's so immersive in that film is the way everyone talks. Everyone talks with that like period accent and period English. It, like I had to watch the witch with subtitles because I just could not understand anyone. Oh, yeah. Um, and in this, Sophia Lillis speaks a little bit too well like she speaks too properly like and i i felt like she should have had maybe a, uh, a british accent or something but right, something like to, to make it yeah 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 she, well she sounds like modern day american like she, she yeah. doesn't sound of the time so that's kind of the only thing but other than that i i thought it was fine the witch or the old woman <laughs> is super creepy and what's kind of different from other kind of tellings is we meet we meet the the old woman in the first act we get to the uh to the house in the first act and we spend a lot of time there so this is what's actually very different and the two kids are guests in this house uh but the old woman is so creepy i mean she looks like death warmed over and there's just other images like that there's uh kind of when we meet this first kind of uh supernatural woman thing at the very beginning it's this woman all in black that they just had all you can see are her like white hands you can't see her face like it's just really creepy stuff and then while they're wandering in in the woods because they get lost like they do in the fairy tale um sophia lillis also kind of semi daydreams or sees things sometimes and these are other people off the pathway which they're warned not to kind of go off of and equally just dark and and brooding the kid uh Hansel, played by Samuel Leakey, uh, was really annoying, but I think he's kind of supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. Our, our two really primary performances here are Gretel and the, 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 the old woman, whose name is Holda, according to IMDb, however far that gets you. Uh, but we'll just call her the old woman, or the witch, uh, whatever. <laughs> you know, it's it's, Gre- you know it's Hansel and Gretel, you know where it's going, yeah, you know what's up. Uh, yeah, Sophia Lillis, I really enjoyed her as, as Gretel. She's, she's this young woman who is out on her own and scared and in a world full of plague and pestilence that she doesn't really understand and trying to look out for her younger brother. And she doesn't really know where she's going and is just trying to figure it out. And you can tell she's concerned and worried and like, she probably could have gone a little deeper in that. But once we get to our uh, hut, she's a bit more confident, but also nervous. Yeah, you're right. She, she carries this kind of uh, air about her that, like, things aren't normal here. You know, this this isn't how the world works. We shouldn't just be able to have food and treat and comfort without price. This this isn't right. Uh, the kid, uh, Hansel, Samuel Leakey, he's, he's a little kid. Like, he's not... 
There's no, nothing to yeah, write home. He's there about to there. eat. He's there to uh, eat. Alice Krieg as as the old woman, uh, she was tremendous. Oh my god. Like I, I know I, I introduced her as the Borg Queen, um, but like no, she's she's really good in this movie. She is she made decisions as an artist. She's like, I'm gonna play it this way, I'm gonna have this super thick accent and and kind of walk around this way. And she's awesome. She's awesome in this movie. I was very pleased. I can't wait to see what she does next. <laughs> like, yeah, really oh, it's good. And so creepy. Like, she, and this, yeah. this is what you want out of, out of uh, atmospheric horror. Like, you you want to just there's this like impending sense of dread the entire time because you know who she is. You know ultimately what she wants, but like the 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 kids don't know that yet. They're just kind of they're weary, but at the same time, like she's providing shelter and food and beds. So it, it like well. It, yeah, it seems all right. Yeah, and that that leads into part of what's so charming about this film's presentation. Like it wears it, it wears it on its sleeve and its title and in its tagline, a grim fairy tale. Like this movie, you you know what's going on when you walk in. You know the story of Hansel and Gretel. You know where it's going. You know these two kids are walking in the woods alone, and they're gonna find this hut with a witch in it. And like knowing that, it gives this, it gives everything this level of suspense. Because you know kind of what's happening. The kids get there and they don't really know what the old woman's about, but you know, sitting there watching. And so every conversation they have, every quiet interaction, you're just like waiting for the string to snap. And you're waiting for something awful to happen. And it keeps building and you keep thinking, when when's things going to go wrong for them? You know, when is... And as they as they stay at this hut, things start to get weird and things start to get odd. And, and, and Gretel starts to experience these kind of wonderful, uh, uh, great and terrible visions and dreams uh, and these really interesting set pieces uh, they put together um, and things just start getting worse. And, and Alice Krieg, man, just, she, she holds down that performance as the old woman and she's just creepy and quiet. And you're just like, this is not normal. And her fingers are all black. And like, it's just, yeah. it, it's, it's really, really intriguing. And it really adds a cool layer of suspense to the film. Yeah, absolutely, and, and like I said, I the setting of the uh, the forest because even that after they find her house, they have to go out into the woods, and there's still a lot of like, what are you seeing? Do you you know, or is what you're seeing is real? And the, and the forest, it's so thick and dark, and just it's its own own character in, in the movie. Yeah, I, I guess that would lean more towards things like set design even though i'm sure they shot this most of this outside i i think probably like the house and the hut they shot on like a back lot somewhere but all the forest stuff the forest just seems so deep and foreboding and changing as our as our characters are walking through it at the beginning it, it kind of shifts you get some parts that are really green and other parts where all the trees are dead and you get some bits where it's fall and there's lots of orange leaves and other parts where it looks like it's spring and like it, you really get this kind of dreamlike walk through the woods until you arrive at the hut and the hut is also awesome it's completely black and it's got this super cool architecture and structure and look to it all the windows look rad and then you get inside it and all the light that comes through the windows is like yellow red and yeah yeah, and like it bathes everything in this weird glow and you get that like babadook effect where you can't really see what's going on in the shadows it's just such a cool like specific look and it looks so unnatural for the world they're in but these kids don't know any better, and they're like, well, obviously something's wrong, but we don't have a choice. We should stay here. Uh, really clever set design in this film. Like, the, the, the sets look great. Yeah. The uh, the, the setting's probably one of the higher points uh, of the movie, and it's... Um, yeah, and like you said, the, the visions kind of play into that, too, because you don't know if Sophia Lillis is... is um, if she's dreaming, or if she's exper- or hallucinating, or a combination of the two, and... You know, it's another effective part of the film. Yeah, and and along with set design, the costume design is fantastic in this movie. Uh, Gretel and Hansel have very simple outfits because they're very simple people. The witch, however, uh, has just like this cool, tight, black dress kind of look she's always got, and her hair is always up. And then when you start to get into kind of dream sequences, you get some really odd-looking like dresses and kind of designs and, and, and kind of very bold decisions that give everything in the dream sequences this very unnatural feel, but it still feels kind of timely for where we're at. And because this world that they're in is full of, like, plague, I think that's talked about at the beginning of the film, everything kind of looks dirty. Nothing looks like it's really been washed in a while. Um, and it it gives everything this feeling of just, like, old old and gross, I guess. 
which makes yeah, the yeah. witch's hut that much more charming when they get in there and it's like nice and there's food and like it's it's a, it's a good I don't know give and take. Yeah, absolutely. It's just well, I was saying we've said a lot of positive things about the movie. Why don't we move on to some of the things that don't work? Yes. Uh, so things that don't work, like I said at the top, uh, really my primary concern with what was going on in this movie was the pacing. This movie is 77 minutes, 87 minutes. I'm sorry. It is one hour and 27 minutes. As we all know, feature length films are supposed to be 90 minutes or longer. So it's just under feature length, uh, which is fine. You know, that's, that's an old standard feature length is however long the feature is. I don't care, but man, it just felt rushed. There's so many scenes in this film. There's so many shots that are clever and look so good. Uh, it, it was shot by a guy named Gallo Olivares, and, and he, he really went to the trouble to get the lighting right and make it look bold and dynamic and get these really interesting looks and set pieces. And every shot is like four seconds long, and then it just cuts to another shot. And like you never get time to really enjoy the ambiance of what you're seeing. You never get time to like enjoy the set and really look at something and stare at something off in the distance and, and kind of figure out what's going on. You, you just never get that. And, and it felt like they ran this movie in front of test audiences, and test audiences didn't like the, op- the initial cut, and producers were like, well, just make it shorter. Make, make it 90 minutes. It'll be fine. And they, and they rushed it out to theaters, and this is what we got. It messes with the pacing of the picture, and I think it hurts it. That, that's my formal opinion on the editing. Andy, what do you think? Um, the, editing, the editing didn't bother me as much as... I, I do think pacing is an issue, but in, the second act seems to really drag. Like, despite it being things feeling rushed there's parts that drag too much they have a lot of conversations around the table and it seems like they have you know a few too many that are just talking around the dining room table and that is kind of the you know because they're eating and it's these big elaborate meals and which raises lots of logistical questions like where are the crops where are the you know where are the animals for where's the cow for the milk like we have milk but no cow it's a a lot of these kind of creepy things but it's one too many slow conversations around the table and yeah act two just really drags a little bit yeah and it it reminded me of something like an a24 film right like very very artsy and has a very cool look to it i was impressed the opening credits and closing credits i think share the same font as like stanley kubrick's the shining like, it's a very, very particular mm-hmm. choice, very, very auteur, what they were doing. But, like, it doesn't have the patience of a movie like that. It doesn't have the confidence yeah. in, in the edit to, to hang on a shot for 10 or 15 or 20 seconds like a Kubrick film would, you know? Like, just to really be immersive and let you sink into it. And the score, which is done by a man named Robin Coderre, uh, or just referred to in the film as Rob, uh, is very synthetic, very electronic, which, again, is something a modern A24 film would do. Uh, and, and it's just, it's just kind of lost sometimes under voiceover, which is provided by Gretel. Uh, uh, they would kind of stick voiceover in and the voiceover reminded me of like the, the early cut of Blade Runner where they stuck in Harrison Ford's voiceover. And I was like, this almost doesn't need to be here. Like it provides some backstory and a little bit of character, but like I, there, there's a version of this movie that's longer that doesn't have that, that I think still works. It it would be much more cerebral, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Yeah. I, (laughs) This film is almost like it's almost getting there. Like it, I, I think it needs to be longer, and I think there's things that, to be developed. Like the, I, I enjoy this theme of uh, this whole like thing about being wary of gifts because that's the opening kind of fairy. Because it's a fairy tale within a fairy tale. You get told one at the very beginning, and it's this fable about you know be aware of of, of gifts, of free gifts, of people, of you know nothing is given without something being taken. I think that's a really interesting idea, and unfortunately, it's just never developed too much, but this movie has room for something like that. Yeah. That that's the one other thing I'd say that, that kind of central theme uh, is never, it never really comes around full circle. It's, it's hit upon a couple times in the first and second act, but it never really comes around at the end. And, and I wish the ending had been just a little bit stronger and maybe it's because you know, the story. So you have an expectation going in of what's going to happen. I'm not going to say this movie doesn't subvert expectations, but for, for, for the presentation through Act 1 and 2, I wish Act 3 had just come out swinging a little bit more because they, they really had me in my seat. I was glued to the screen. You know, I would have I gone for it. And instead, it just feels a little too safe. I, I don't know. This movie is PG-13, and maybe that's what it was. Maybe I was expecting something more bombastic and violent because uh, right. it could have gone there. It, it really could have. Like, it, it, it totally had me uh, by its hooks. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> me too. Sorry, I was looking up the uh, the rating because I thought it was rated R, so I was surprised by that. Yeah, uh, no, PG-13. You wouldn't know it. So, uh, with that being said, I think we've covered uh, performances, roughly the plot, uh, uh, presentation, which is very important, pacing, music, design. Anything else you want to talk about on this one? No, I think we're ready for recommendations. Yeah. Uh, Andy, would you recommend Gretel and Hansel? Uh, yeah, I would, surprisingly. I, I didn't expect this to be good at all. Uh, similar, this reminded me of when we saw Underwater, which was uh, a pleasant surprise uh, kind of as well. It It's definitely, if you're a horror auteur, if you like slow-paced, you know, atmospheric horror, this is definitely uh, the film for you. And it's, I don't think it's particularly done well at the box office, but it's, it's a, it's a nice little gem. There's a lot going on in it. It's not perfect. It's not great. It's not entirely memorable, but I had a good time. Yeah, me too. I, I liked a lot about this movie. It didn't quite get over the finish line for me, but like I said, there, there's a version of this movie somewhere that works better. Like, and I, I, I believe in that. I think it's atmospheric and it's different. I think you're going to get a lot more mileage out of something like this than you would, you know, another Annabelle sequel or Insidious 5 or whatever Bloomhouse Pictures coming out next. Like, it's different and it's independent. And I think we need to support more studios like that. Gretel and Hansel, not that bad. But definitely for a certain kind of audience. Uh, probably not something you're going to want to go see on like a date night unless you're really into like a horror kind of thing probably not something you're gonna watch with your parents but if you're looking for something fun something different you know and and you don't mind blowing a couple bucks at the movies on something popular uh gremlin hansel you could do worse not too shabby uh i i'm anxious to see what this team does next and with that we should probably move on to our next segment uh not so much the death of cinema this week more oscar predictions <laughs> Yes, more Oscar predictions is what we're going to be doing. Uh, we talked about the Oscars last week, I think last week, nominees, some things that are coming out. We're not really in the prediction game on this show because anything could happen, but we do have some hot takes on what we think will win versus what we hope will win. Um, of course, to be clear, yes. that's what we, what we think the Academy will will award the, 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 the awards to based on their previous kind of... Uh, um, Previous awards, I guess, versus what we personally hope will win, uh, but probably won't. Sometimes it's the same, sometimes it's different. It's the Oscar predictions. We'll start with Best Picture. Um, my fa- What I would love to see win is Parasite. Uh, incredible movie, and it would be the first time an international slash foreign film won uh, Best Picture. It's come close. Other films, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, almost 20 years ago. Um, it does happen, but they've never taken home the big award. I would love to see that happen. Uh, I think probably 1917 is the big front runner. Aside from that, yes, I would love to see Parasite win as well. I don't think it will, unfortunately. I think that it's going to go to something like 1917, possibly Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just because I know Hollywood loves itself, and I think that's going to be our winner for actor in a leading role. I would love it if Adam Driver won for Marriage Story. Uh, it may not be my favorite performance by him, but it's white people talking in rooms, and we know the Academy <laughs> loves that. And, I, man, I, I love me some Driver. We did Driver Week a few weeks back, and I've been all about him ever since. I'm thinking the award will go to Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We uh, the, the we, we did have, actually, I went and saw Joker again with a couple of our mutual friends for our small movie movie club. Um, we got to see a 35mm uh, print screening of, uh, of Joker. And, you know, what I was thinking is Adam Driver does have some incredible scenes in Marriage Story, but Joaquin Phoenix has to be the Joker the entire time. He has to be pitiful Arthur Fleck the entire... And, like, you see his madness creep out from the from the opening scenes. Um, so I think that's... In that way, it's a much more powerful per- performance. So, and I think he's the big front runner for sure. I agree. He lost, like, 60 pounds for the role and just, God, nothing ever goes right. It is, it's a descent into sorrow and madness like I've never seen before. <laughs> and I love it. Uh, who do you got for Actress. Um, this is probably going to Renee Zellweger for Judy, who playing Judy Garland. I have not seen this film, but I've heard nothing but buzz, and everyone's saying that she's going to win. So that's what, what I think. Uh, these other perf- the other performance that I've 
the only other ones I've seen are Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story and uh, Saoirse Ronan in Little Women, who were uh, really good, too. Yes, I've only seen those two films, uh, so I don't have a whole lot of ground to stand on this one. I'm thinking Renee Zellweger will probably take it. Uh, for actor in a supporting role, very exciting. I'm thinking it's probably going to go to Brad Pitt. Once Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood, which is a he, real stretch because we got Joe Pesci and Al Pacino in there, but I, I don't know. I got a feeling. Yeah, uh, Brad Pitt, he's been the one everyone's talked about. He, I think he definitely did do a great job in, in that movie. The rest of these, I mean, we did see Anthony Hopkins last week in The Two Popes. Uh, I feel like The Irishman hasn't really, it, it hasn't stuck around in people's minds in the conversation the way other things like Joker or Parasite or or just other, a lot of other films. So uh, I think it, it's one of those things. It's an honor just to be nominated, but I think Brad Pitt's going to take it. Hmm. Actress. Uh, I think Laura Dern or, or ScarJo um, in a supporting role. Th- those are the two, the big uh, buzzes about, I would like to see probably Laura Dern take this. Yes. I'm thinking and also hoping Laura Dern is the one that takes it. Florence Pugh is great in Little Women, especially seeing her performance uh, in Midsummer. Uh, seeing the two of them, how different they are and how closely they were to shooting. Like, it's really impressive what she was able to do with that role. But Laura Dern is just so cool in Marriage Story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's got so much confidence on screen, I can't get over it. Animated feature film. Uh, my big hopeful is Klaus. Uh, from Netflix, it is entirely hand animated uh, by a man named Sergio Pablos and his studio. Uh, it just won the BAFTA for best animated film. It has been taking awards for best animated film uh, all, all all the way down. Um, I don't wow. think it's gonna win, unfortunately. Uh, I think it's probably gonna end up going to Toy Story Four. But um, I my my big hopeful is Klaus because that movie has been just slamming animated awards uh, all the way through award season thus far. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I only watched half of I Lost My Body, and then I kind of got distracted and didn't finish it. I would love to see something besides Disney win. Uh, Usually, especially because I don't don't think, I mean, Toy Story 4 is a good movie, but it's not Disney's best, and I I definitely think one of these other four deserve to win. Dark Horse would be (laughs) like a four, a missing link for sure. Big time, yeah. Um, Directing. Should I take sorry, that? Zach, that sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll go ahead. Um, this is another point. Uh, Bong Joon-ho, I, I always feel whoever wins d- Best Director should also win Best Picture because if you win Best Picture, then you were probably the best director that, that year. That's just me. So I think Bong Joon-ho should win uh, Best Director. It is possible that Bong Joon-ho will win Best Director while something else wins Best Picture because they have a hard time giving that away to someone else. Um, if he doesn't win, then it's, again, probably uh, Sam Mendes for 1917. Yeah, I think I would hope it's Bong Joon-ho as well. I think, man, that movie does so many things well. Uh, and one of the things that's particularly charming is the pacing and the editing. There's a rhythm to it. And like that doesn't that doesn't just come from nothing. That's very specific choreographed scenes and structure and scripting and plot and direction. And that's all coming from Bong Joon-ho, which is tremendous. But when you talk about choreography and scene direction, you can't deny 1917 and what it does in its one take format, that stuff is not easy to do and it pulls off a lot. And also honorable mention for our man, Quentin Tarantino, once upon a time in Hollywood, they worked LA over for that movie. They shut down streets for like weeks and like refurb stuff with old cars and like made it look awesome. And like that, that, that doesn't come easy. So all strong entries. I'm hoping parasite is our winner for best director. I also want to talk about music, original score. Uh, I would love to see, Something like Joker take it. I think this the score was so strong and so I don't I don't know emotional. There's there's something to it and it's so new and different and I, I liked it so much and I thought it was so cool. Uh, it will probably end up going to something like I don't know 1917. I guess Thomas Newman. Certainly not Randy Newman over on Marriage Story. Or I can't Again, believe got a nomination here, but you know whatever. I- I couldn't, I couldn't hum you one tune from Marriage Story. Like I, no. as far as to me, all I remember is no music. I, I in fact, I, I felt like the the film had very little music, um, to it at all. So I just, I don't know how that even got nominated. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I would like to see Hildor Guanatador, uh, take uh the Oscar home for Joker. That's such a memorable score. Turned into a whole meme. I, I joked that at our screening that I was gonna do the Joker dance in front of the big marquee at, at Texas <laughs> Theater. 
but uh, I, I was voted outvoted on that front. Um, and then the 1917, it was also really good. Star Wars was actually surprisingly disappointing. Um, one thing I, I remember from things like The Force Awakens and uh, The Last Jedi was we got some new themes, some new music, some things that f- that were new but still fit into the Star Wars universe. I can't remember. It feels like we didn't get anything new in Rise of Skywalker. Certainly nothing memorable. And I think John Williams is just there because he's John Williams. Uh, but I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I couldn't tell you anything new that came from that score. Star Wars has that really bold reprise of the original theme in the trailer, and that's about all I remember. Which sounds great, by the way, but like that's really all I could see them running on for that category. Like it's, it's just a reprise of what we've already heard. I'm glad it's John Williams. I'm glad he's doing the work, but it is what it is. Uh, I think you got the next one, right? What do, what do you want to cover next? Um, well, I, <laughs> let me see. I'll do original song, and then I I don't really have any other big categories to go into. Um, okay. so, so we have uh, Toy Story Four, a song by Randy R- Newman that I don't know. Into the Unknown, the big big number from Frozen Two, Stand Up from Harriet, I'm Gonna Love Me Again from Rocket Man, and I'm Standing with You from Breakthrough, which I can't believe is even on this. Um, I think it's probably gonna go to uh, Into the Unknown. It's a good. It's a good power ballad, man. It's good stuff. Uh, the the panic cover is great too. Panic of the Disco. Mm-hmm. I can't. Again, how is Randy Newman on this list? I don't get it. Like, who is nominating this man? <laughs> Was this a popularity contest? Like, I, I I don't get it. I I I would love it if Into the Unknown got it. I especially because it's not 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 nominated for best animated feature, which just feels like they're sticking it to Disney. I know they're not, but in a way feels like it it may go to rocket man and i haven't seen it and i haven't heard the song but i know it got uh best best award, best song at the it's not the grammys good god golden, golden globes. globes yeah yeah all, <laughs> the awards are almost as forgettable as their name one more i wanted to talk about uh writing for original screenplay and then we'll move on i swear uh, uh the, the 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 honor the honorable noms here in case you don't remember because it's way at the bottom of the list are knives out marriage story 1917 once upon a time in hollywood and parasite i love parasite I thought it was so well put together, and I thought it was great. But, man, it feels good to see Knives Out somewhere on this list, and it's hard for me not to look at that and wonder, maybe, maybe Knives Out will take it. Because it's, <laughs> su- it's, it's such a smart screenplay, even though it gets totally convoluted by the end. Um, I enjoyed the characters and, and the feeling of it so much. I, I, I like seeing it on here, so I think that's my hopeful. Yeah, that would be mine as well, because Knives Out was, was this kind of combination of an original film and screenplay but that was very commercially ex- successful but also appealed to a wide audience because the the favorite front runner is going to be tarantino because i think he he hasn't won uh, his writing oscar yet um and or he may have for uh, django anyways you know it's it's like that like once upon a time once upon a time in Hollywood, it's three and a half. It's three hours long. It's really slow. It's an auteur film. Um, you know, it's original, but uh, I would I would just like to see something. I would like to see Ryan Johnson walk away with an Oscar. That would be really great, especially to all the Ryan Johnson haters still salty yeah. about the Last Jedi. Yeah, all the haters, and there are many. No, I think you're right. Uh, a lot of good entries for the Oscars this year. Um, it's one of those things, man, like half the time what I hope will win isn't actually what will win. If I'm putting together like an Oscars prediction list for an office contest or something, usually I'll go with what I think will win and not what I hope will win because that's the way it works. Why hope for anything? Never meet your heroes. Uh, <laughs> are you going to be watching the show? Are you going to be watching the show? Man, are they are they streaming it on the internet? Finally? No, no, it's well, never then pro- streaming. Then probably not. Yeah, I, I, I wish they were, um, but they never do, so... I don't think so. I, I know they're showing I, it a couple places around <laughs> town. I, I probably not. I'll probably end up just catching the highlights later. Mm-hmm. I've been watching the show. I think I, I think I've missed one show since the year two thousand. So I'm gonna. I'll, I'll be watching them because I do enjoy the show. I and I would like you know you make it four hours long. I'll I'll watch all of it. Uh, but they do try to keep it short. They do try to keep it to three hours. Um, but there again, there there won't be a host. They're bringing lots of celebrity presenters, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. Um, so I'm I'm definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I I like your your time invested fallacy here. Like you've put so you've done it for so many years, you can't quit now, right? Like, no, uh, yeah, it's a tradition now. It's a tra- it, 
<laughs> it's a tradition, sure. Yeah, if it was on the internet, probably. But like like many millennials, uh, I'm probably not going to watch it because they don't stream it. And then they wonder every year, well, why aren't people watching? Because it's not on the internet. I should be able to go to Twitter and immediately start watching it. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, that being said, the Oscars are running this Sunday, correct? Yes. I got that right. Yes, Sunday the 9th. So keep an eye out for that, and we will be talking about them next week on the show. And with that, we should move on to our final film of the episode. Andy has graciously agreed to take the summer on this one. Andy, please take it away. American Factory. Now the whole world is watching. Nothing in America has changed in terms of working people working hard. What changed in America was rich people deciding they wanted to rewrite the rules to take advantage of people. You never give up on the American dream. To me, that would be un-American. Uh, so this is a Netflix documentary that came out uh, a couple of months ago, uh, which has been distributed by uh, President Barack and Michelle Obama's production company called uh, Higher Ground. Um, and I was really intrigued by this. It has been nominated for uh, Best Documentary, uh, Long Subject. Um, so I was really interested about what this was. Uh, and all I knew was this. It's called American Factory, and it has something to do with China, but I wasn't sh- sure. Anyways, the... The documentary starts in 2008, where this GM plant in Dayton, Ohio, closes, uh, which would have been right at the height of the, or right when the recession started. And so, GM closes this plant, 10,000 jobs immediately cut, and leaves this community de- devastated. Uh, to cut to two years later, 2010, uh, Fuyao Fuya Glass comes in, reopens this fa- the same factory, refits it to be uh, basically manufacturer auto glass for cars, trucks, uh, for every brand, and is brings and is going to be bringing several thousand jobs. Um, and it's uh, a Chinese investor, Chinese owned, and they're going to be bringing in a lot of Chinese workers, but also hiring, of course, the local people in Dayton, Ohio. So initially, this seems like a really great thing. Uh, you know, we're opening the plant, we're getting jobs, uh, we're going to be working together. It, it, it's going to be this collaboration. It, it looks really fun. It's almost like the setup of a sitcom or, or something like that. Then we get start to actually have some issues, some some struggles. Uh, there are cultural issues. There are obviously huge language barrier. There are other. Uh, there's political issues, uh, and and these things, you know, it's things like. Uh, the 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 workers want to unionize china doesn't have unions they don't they don't know anything about it they don't want to deal with with it uh there's they struggle with things like safety and wages and just cultural differences in in both kind of business mindset working mindset and and it's about the this giant gray area where both of these sides with american and chinese are working together and they they come up, they run into lots of issues and lots of struggles, but it's about them trying to work together to kind of get through this because they both kind of need each other. So that's our setup. Zach, what'd you think? I think on its face, American factory is a very clean cut, dry documentary. Uh, that's very efficient in what it does. It does not have a whole lot of like on camera interviews with people. Uh, it's mostly voiceover and otherwise it just shows footage of inside the factory and how things work and, and kind of the day to day operations. Um, but underneath that, un- underneath the kind of uh, a very crisp skin it's got, this movie is heartbreakingly efficient at depicting an image of global capitalism in a way that is uh, very eye opening and at times very bleak. Uh, it It is very sad uh to me at least what what was going on with the people of Dayton Ohio and, and also with uh a lot of folks who who work for this company over in China i i don't know if this movie was make was out to make it look like this company is maybe not so awesome uh fuya glass but man it 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 is just so stark and and it's such it took me on a ride I did not expect to go, and I think that's something all great documentaries do. I totally get why it's nominated for an Academy Award. It it started boring, and it picks up, and it doesn't let go. And I was so into this movie by the end, and I couldn't believe it. Um, 
lots to say about this movie. Maybe not the emotional reaction uh, you'd expect, uh, but man, American Factory really is something else. Uh, did, did you yeah. feel that way? No, absolutely. When it, when the first like you know twenty minutes start, um, and and it start, I thought it was going to be one kind of documentary, and I thought it was going to be this kind of hand holding. We are the world. Like, oh look, look at how great East meets West. You yeah. know, Chinese investors bringing back jobs, and it looks like it's going to be this. And you know, and you have these people from you know worlds apart literally where you know they're pairing a chinese supervisor with an american operator and they're working together and they're learning from each other and you know they they invite each other over for barbecue and and it it looks like it's going to be this this kind of saccharine thing about brotherhood in the workplace and coming together but it's really not it's about the struggles of of both sides and and again it's it's the the owner is investor versus the the workers and the union it's capitalism versus uh, you know the, the the social needs of the community and the workers because you, you know you have a worker who's like well I was earning thirty dollars an hour at GM now I earn twelve dollars an hour at, at Fuyao but it's the only job I can get so it's like uh, well you got a job but it pays way less than the job you had so it it brings up really difficult questions yeah and it's 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 just like stark in a way that you just don't expect and and that's exactly it I figured it would be a whole lot of Hey, you know what? It's it's tough making it in America, but you jobs, jobs, jobs. You know, go out and get yourself a factory job and factory wages, and, and it'll work out. No, man, no, it's it's not great. Like, and it's 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 actually quite the opposite. And I think that's what makes it so much stronger is because you go in expecting it to be one thing, and it turns out to be something different. Um, there's the the, the the film's kind of split up into I'd say three acts, right? We have our, we have our opening where our uh, GM factory is closed, and then just a few years later, it is open, reopened and converted to uh, Fuyao Glass uh, uh, factory, uh, and most of the people who formerly worked there just immediately get, essentially get their jobs back in some capacity, working back in the same factory they were in, right, Put, do, doing similar work, um, but for less pay and in um, less than ideal conditions, we'll say. Uh, following that, our second act, we are pivoted to China. A, a group of American uh, workers from Fuyao, uh, American executives, go to China to see how their factories do it and what's going on over there. And that was probably my favorite part of the whole film. Um, that is really something else. That, that's <laughs> yeah. really eye-opening. And then our third act, we're back in America, and we see our executives now instilling some of the policies they learned from China here and how that affects American workers and how there's just this grind uh, between the two cultures and, and this divide between workplace ethics and, and safety versus efficiency and productivity and unions versus union busting and like, oh man, <laughs> it's such a it's such a fascinating, unflinching look at like life in an American factory that was so engaging in a way that I never thought it would be. Yeah, um so, like you're saying that that when they go to China, that's definitely very eye-opening. And this is what, where one of the struggles comes from: is just it's a difference in culture in China. They're used to what's called nine nine six. You work twelve hours a day, nine a.m. to nine p.m. six days a week, and everyone's happy about. It. I mean, they're probably not happy about it, but that's the cult. The culture is is you work a lot. You're expected to, and it, it's also just the culture of the company. Like everyone is there. It, it's like you know, part of the family. Like we're here to support the company and make sure it's successful. And I'm going to do my part. You're going to do your. And like you know, they take the Americans on like it's kind of a celebration. And there's like songs and dancing. It's basically like workplace propaganda. And it's just like it's crazy, um, you know. And it's not how work is done in America. And that's the kind of a, a clash point because, like, as much as sometimes the uh, the Chinese <laughs> managers they don't like the attitudes of the American workers, but that's what they have to deal with. They can't just be, um, you know, they can't just bring in an entire, you know, they just can't bring in Chinese workers. They have, they have some, but they have to primarily hire Americans, but they have to deal with kind of different um, attitudes. And it's, yeah, it's just so starkly different. The safety thing is, is also crazy because they don't have OSHA in, in China. They don't like like government oversight on safety is very, very lax. So that's another issue. 
Yeah, I, I had an odd benefit watching this movie, and and if you get the chance to watch it, and you have somebody in your family, it's like this. Maybe it would be worth them watching it with you. I, I watched this movie with Christine. Uh, she was sitting on the couch, and she had formerly worked at a uh, oil and gas company as, as a technical writer, right? Writing technical manuals for workplace operation and OSHA standards and safety things. So I popped this on, and I said, "Oh, it's this documentary about an American factory." I think it's. I don't really know what it's about, but I'm going in fresh. That's how I wanted to see it. And she said, "Yeah, I'll just read." you do your thing. And 20 minutes in, she was more invested in it than I was because she started realizing, Hey, they're not doing things right. They're not following safety guidelines. And, and a lot of the Chinese uh, operators there don't want to, they think it gets in the way and it slows them down. And then your second act, when you get over to China, she was like, Oh my God, they're not wearing hard hats. (laughs) They're not wearing safety glasses. Like, what are they doing? Those people are trying to pick up things with their bare hands. Those, those glasses, those, those uh, gloves they're using to pick up broken glass aren't, like, cut-resistant. Like, that's just not how it's done. And you start to, oh, my God. The, the only thing more sobering than how different these two cultures are in trying to accomplish the same goal to produce glass in a factory and, and jobs for people is how neither side sees the advantages of the other, right? We have our American workers who are like, we need to start a union. This isn't working. They don't respect our rights. And and it's made very clear from the beginning of the film, the Chinese, the Chinese managers are not having it. They say straight up, if a union starts, we're shutting the factory down. We're, we are not playing with that. Unions get in the way of efficiency. Look, you should be happy to have a job. That's the way they see it. You should be happy to, to make an American wage because over in China, it's not that way. And American workers are upset. Meanwhile, over in China, they feel like, man, American workers have it so easy. It's absurd. Like you, you guys are lazy, and you're not you're not hard workers like we are, and you don't care about the good of the greater people and the greater state and the greater good. You just care about yourselves, and you're you're lazy, and you talk during work, and like one of the managers says it great. He says it's not your fault. It's just it's just how what you've learned. Like it's 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 in your nature is what he says. <laughs> And, and it's exhausting to watch because both sides have merit in some way and both sides have problems. I get it. But, like, mm-hmm. when you put the two together in one place, it seems like all you run into is problems. And, and efficiency is low and that just makes people upset and tempers flare and, like, oh, my God, it, it's, it's exhausting to watch. Yeah, and th- I think that's part of why this is such a great documentary is that it doesn't pull any punches. It lets people be how they are. Like you have, you know, you have sequences with uh, the Chinese managers where they're saying the Americans are lazy, they're entitled, they're difficult to work with, all this stuff, and like it's not held back. And then you have some of the same things on the American side where you know part of what they're doing in the factory is that there's they're like playing something on TV that has like a bunch of Chinese children and you, you see one of the workers say, this is America. We don't want that. We don't want to see that. That doesn't need to be on here. You know? And I was like, I was, you know, it's one of those things I was really surprised at the candidness of what, of what they shot and what they allowed in the film. And it, it, it creates a much more balanced picture. And, and, and again, it shows the real struggles here. And like I said, I was expecting this to be a, we are the world, we can work together kind of thing. And, it, and it's definitely not that. No, uh, I was also surprised, I think like many, many good documentaries at its candid presentation. I'm not sure how they got clearance to make this thing and, and put it out, put it out. Um, I don't know if the, like, they just, I don't know if the, the film filmmakers just like paid a lot of money for the rights to run it or what, but like, it does not seem like a particularly glowing look at life in this factory or, or this company. Uh, and again, it's a lot of the differences are cultural. I, I really don't think it's personal. I hope it isn't anyway. A, lo- a lot of it is, is just things like why you know, why don't you see it my way? It's two sides just bickering with each other. Right. And in, in the most diplomatic way possible. And, and it's just a bummer. <laughs> well, yeah. And you also have things like, you know, these are, they brought over these Chinese managers who like some of them speak English. Some of them don't. Some of them speak very, you know, broken or, or not really great English. And, and these are, you know, you're not talking with some scholarly people. These are all blue collar American workers that like, you know, the language barrier is, is a huge, huge, uh, uh, issue. And the, you meet the, I think there's one supervisor who, who's an American who does speak, um, Chinese. And it, I mean, just him being able to communicate better puts him kind of, and allows him to to get more done. But, but with the rest of them, I mean, they, all the Americans can be ignored because they don't speak the language and it, it's just, uh, it's a real issue, but it also shows why, you know, maybe it's important to, <laughs> to start learning other languages at the same time. 
Yeah, and I think that's probably where we should start to curb this as we wrap up our, our review here. Um, ultimately, this movie does a lot of things right, and it's not just like a sob fest or anything. Like it's it's a stark look at things, but it's encouraging, right? Because you get to look at this aspect of life that I didn't know a whole lot about, at least. Uh, maybe you do listening, but I had no idea this is the way things are. And as the U.S. grows and China grows, like, you're going to get more, more interactions like this. You're going to get more crossover like this. And it's just, it's refreshing in a way. I think I think a lot of us have this idea of American companies going over to China and starting factories over there. It's really cool to see the inverse and see what's happening here when you try to flip the script and, and how it goes over and kind of why it works and also why it doesn't. I, I think it's encouraging in a way. It's it's uh, it's sunlight in, in a way that, that, that can only disinfect. Yeah, I think the uh, one of the things the documentary is really about, it's about moving forward in, into the future together. Um, cause that's the only way it, it's going to happen. You know, people want to be isolationist, but the, you know, that time in, in history is over. This is very much a global community and this is showing an example of that. And what, what do we need to make that work? Yeah. And ultimately, um, there's, there's a man about halfway through this film that, that I think says it very succinctly and I'm going to sum him up cause he says it very, very brokenly, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's a movie about like this, this little blue rock we're all sitting on and getting along with each other and learning to, to play nice with your friends in the sandbox, uh, just in a global scale and, and, and how the lines that divide us aren't really as, as, as dark as it might seem. And, and how, how, when we understand this stuff, we can overcome it, I think. Um, but man, the, the journey to get there's a, a, a bit of a downer, I should say, uh, but in a, but in a great way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it there are some difficult moments highlighted in in the film, but it also I, I think is also hopeful. Especially, you know, there are issues of automation begin to also creep up as well, and you know, these people that are upset that they, you know, that their new job pays half as much as their old job. Well, soon you you may not have a job at all. So it's again more issues about the future to come. Yeah, well, American factory. A, a surprisingly encouraging look, I guess, at, at life in an American <laughs> factory. Uh, before we, of course, wrap it up, I need to ask Andy, what did you think of, or would you recommend, excuse me, would you recommend American factory? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was really surprised. Um, cause again, I thought it was going to be something it wasn't, it's very eye open is particularly interesting to me as someone who's been learning Chinese for the last year or so, um, which I could understand uh, a fair amount, but it, again, I've learned a lot about that culture, but it's important that you know, it helps us learn about other cultures, but also this is the reality of, you know, it's not always going to be American investment abroad. Sometimes abroad comes, comes here. And what does that, that look like? Uh, but I thought it was put together really well. I thought it was very balanced. I thought it was very candid. You know, it wasn't flag waving. It wasn't flag burning either. It, it just, you know, it's about bigger things in the country. It's about the future and moving forward together. Yes. Uh, I would recommend it as well. It is a, surprisingly sobering look at, at the life in a blue collar, uh, uh, workplace, um, that is, that is moderated by another country. It's, it's fascinating to see how these two entities work together in the workplace. Uh, um, sometimes it doesn't work out great. Other times it actually works really efficiently. It is 110 minutes long and I might say it's a little long and a little dry, but if you know what you're getting into, uh, I think you're going to have a lot of fun. It subverts expectations. It becomes something you didn't expect. American Factory is a very smart documentary and probably very much deserves the Oscar nomination this year. And with that, that is our show for the week. Gretel and Hansel and American Factory, two very different films. Um, yes. Yeah, but you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. And next week, we're going to be taking a look at the new DC film, Birds of Prey, or... The fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. Did I get that right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Ooh, it's the most ridiculous acronym ever. It's really something. Uh, yeah, you, uh, when Andy wrote the outline this for this week, he listed the headline as 
Well, you want to do it, Andy? It's it's really something. <laughs> Birds of Prey, A-T-F-E-O-O-H-Q. <laughs> A-T-F-E-O-O-H-Q. Yeah, of course. I got to remember that for the in- introduction next week. Uh, we're also going to take a look at a new Netflix film, Horse Girl, which doesn't sound that awesome, but hear us out. It, it, it's got something going on because uh, we don't know a whole lot about it. Horse Girl comes out this Friday, February 7th. Uh, it is a movie penned and starring Allison Brie of Community. It's also published by uh, the Duplass, Duplass brothers who do some horror and some projects on HBO. We don't know a whole lot about it, but we're excited to see it only for its premise. Uh, here it is from what's on Netflix.com because I don't actually know. Uh, it is this socially awkward, but has an ornate love for arts and crafts, horses and supernatural crime. Sarah is beginning to lose her grip on reality as her increasingly lucid dreams and reality start to mold into one. The movie is Horse Girl, and we're going to watch it. We don't really know anything about it other than that. So stick around, watch it with us, stay tuned, and get our opinion on Birds of Prey and that next week. Uh, Check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. I think we're on Instagram. All that social media stuff. Check us out on offscriptfilmreview.com and send us an email a little correspondence huh maybe what you thought of the episode or maybe the movies we've seen your oscar predictions huh i'd like to talk about those email us at <laughs> mail at offscriptfilmreview.com i promise we'll read it on the air yeah i think i think we'll probably read it on the air and if you're listening for the first time if you can do anything for the show if you've gotten this far in just subscribe just subscribe to the show and let us know what you thought. Maybe in a rating and review. That would be pretty neat. But, uh, you know, hey, you do you, man. It's it's only good podcast policy. Yeah, not just us, by the way. Rate and review all your favorite podcasts. Just do it. It takes like five minutes, and they all really appreciate it, us included. So, worth the time. And with that being said, we should probably wrap for the week. This has been Off Script, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening. <laughs>